President Biden rescinded a Trump-era executive order called Schedule F, which would have established a special class of career employees more easily subject to removal. House Democrats and a handful of Republicans are still concerned about the potential of Schedule F policy. The House has cleared a bill that would prevent a revival, hoping to close the books on Schedule F for good. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, why is this coming up again? Why so much energy expended on it if the first day in office the Biden administration rescinded it? Right. So, Tom, even though it's something that hasn't really it was never really implemented and hasn't really been in effect for quite a long time now. It's still something that's causing a lot of concern, especially for House Democrats and Senate Democrats as well. Basically, as a reminder, the executive order for Schedule F, it would have moved about 50,000 policymaking federal positions to a new classification, making those employees at will, which would have removed some of their civil service protections, therefore making them easier to fire and potentially replace. So even though it was revoked, it's still something where members of the House and Senate are trying to basically just put it to rest for good. So we're seeing the most recent piece uh, in Congress related to this is called the Preventing a Patronage System Act. It's gained a lot of recent traction, and it has just cleared the full House in a vote of 225 to 204, mostly along party lines, but with six Republicans voting in favor of the bill as well. What would this Preventing a Patronage System Act, PPSA, how would it change anything for the federal workforce if it would, other than saying there shall be no Schedule F-like apparatus? That is pretty much the gist of it. Is It's saying that any current or future White House administration would not be able to create a new federal employee classification unless they have express approval from Congress. That's something that's just, it's pretty directly in response to the Schedule F executive order from Trump in October 2020. And basically under the act, agency leaders wouldn't be able to reclassify any positions to anything that's outside of merit-based principles. So those protect things like equal treatment of employees, equal pay, and also protect against workplace retaliation for potential like whistleblowers in the federal government. And essentially it would just systematically put into place prevention against employees becoming easier to Higher or easier to fire from the federal workforce. And Drew, you followed these discussions that took place in the House. What were they like? What were they talking about? So they did a little while back report favorably out of the Committee on Oversight and Reform and then advanced to the full House. But there was a lot of discussion between mostly between Democrats and Republicans who just take one side or the other over Schedule F, Democrats being uh, against it and Republicans being in favor of it. So, for example, Representative Carolyn Maloney, who's the chairwoman of the Oversight and Reform Committee and a witness at a recent hearing from the House Rules Committee as well, she said that even though Biden revoked the executive order, it was something that still continues to cause concern for the federal workforce. The order still sent shockwaves throughout the federal workforce, and some agencies had already started the process of compiling their list of positions to convert to Schedule F. This history is important to remember because there are some who want to pick up where the revoked executive order left off. Congress must firmly assert that no president can unilaterally make such a dramatic change to the civil service schedule by executive fiat. And that's Carolyn Maloney, who's actually not long for this world in terms of Congress, but I think her 
replacement, Jerry Nadler, is of the same mind, so that won't really affect anything materially for that representative seat. And the House did pass the bill with a slightly bipartisan vote. There's a couple of Republicans that went over to that bill. That's correct. A couple did, but most Republicans on the committee were saying that they were opposed to the Preventing a Patronage System Act. They said, just as a general consensus, that the legislation would make it difficult to discipline or terminate civil servants in those policymaking or policy-related roles. They're concerned about things like poor performance and insubordination. And many Republicans actually support Schedule F and similar policies. We had, for example, Jody Heiss introduce an amendment to this bill, which would have essentially slashed the Preventing a Patronage System Act and replace it with his own bill that would have revived parts of Schedule F. That amendment was ultimately not adopted, but it's something that was a general consensus among Republicans. And ranking member of the House Rules Committee, Tom Cole, also explained in a little more detail why many Republicans expressed concerns about the legislation. This would limit the president's authority over the executive branch, make it harder for the president to be effective in making policy changes, and would make it difficult to discipline or terminate civil servants in policymaking roles for poor performance or insubordination. While I believe strongly in the need for a well-structured civil service, and the need for civil service protections, uh, and I'm strongly supportive of the federal workforce. I understand concerns that a blanket ban on adding new categories of accepted service positions may ultimately harm the institutions this bill is purportedly trying to protect. All right. And so it did pass the House. But of course, there's that other chamber known as the Senate. Any chance of something similar passing in the Senate? So we have seen the companion bill be introduced in the Senate. That's led by Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia. That was in August. And they also following up on the House's passage of the bill, they added that they were, quote, pushing to follow suit in the Senate. So there is some talk that they're going to try to push it forward. The Senate Democrats would. But in general, it's, you know, it's hard to tell whether or not it would actually be passed on that end as well. Well, the discussion really does follow a real issue in the government for all administrations, and that is when there is a radical change in policy in some agency that might be controversial publicly, then you've got federal civil servants that have to carry out that policy. You've seen this over the years. If some senior executive service member strongly disagrees with that change in policy, sometimes they resign and leave the government rather than try to carry it out or try to not carry it out and stay in their jobs, which borders on insubordination. So there's that option. Not a great one, but we've seen that happen. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, 
and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.